Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. We are recording from our studios in beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at specific policy subjects, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects, from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and national level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Bruce Moreland, one of your hosts for this morning's show, and the man sitting across from me is co-host Rich Larson, who wears more hats than the infamous Bartholomew Cubbins. And one of those is a man who's scared of artificial intelligence. <laughs> we are joined today by Sean Riley, the co-founder of Bisblocks Consulting, a business consulting firm whose stated purpose is to disrupt the boring, transform the mediocre, and strengthen growth in the world of business. Prior to forming his company, Sean was the Chief Information Officer for the state of North Dakota for just under six years. He's also served as an IT executive for the Mayo Clinic and Mayo Health Systems. Sean is a regular contributor to the CSO Perspectives podcast and serves on the Think Tank Advisory Board for the Cybersecurity Summit, which is a sponsor of our sister show, National Security This Week. Sean Riley, welcome to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio. Thank you, guys. Really uh, excited to be here again for my third round with you guys. So happy, happy to be talking technology again. We're going to have to uh, make you an unofficial co-host of this show, I think, Sean. We really do appreciate you giving us some more time. So, cool. as, as long as I get one of those cool yellow shirts, I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. That's a, Bruce is wearing a Rotarian shirt, which uh, you know it doesn't get cooler than being a Northfield Rotarian. So. I know, it, and it's a bright, bright, yeah. bright yellow. <laughs> you're not. No one's going to mistake you for a deer when you're out deer hunting. That's for, for sure. sure. All right, Sean. Uh, before you moved to the private sector, you were the CIO for the state of North Dakota. In fact, you were a guest on our show last year when we recorded at the Cyber uh, Security Conference of October in October of 2022, and it was a most interesting show on cybersecurity, and the recording is available through our website. For our listeners, today we're going to review some of the history of artificial intelligence and then discuss the state of the, uh, the, state of the art today and close with some ideas on public policy that uh, we might expect to be implemented. So I'm going to start us off by mentioning that I remember when playing chess was considered an activity that required intelligence, but eventually chess fell to the AIs. And that as I was doing research in AI, it's, it's like nuclear fusion. It was just 10 years away until it was going to achieve the magic threshold. Um, and I remember it seems like every time AI rises to the challenge, we move the goalposts. I also remember when rule-based expert systems were being built, these complex systems tried to capture the expertise of experts in what appeared to be a simple, monstrous computer program with lots of if-then-else logic. How has the approach to programming AIs changed since the early days? So, so Bruce, that's, uh, that's probably a two-hour answer all on its own, right? But, uh, so... So I will, I will try to keep this at a high level for your audience. The, uh, the nerds out there listening will probably yell at me about how I'm not being technical enough. But, you know, for all, for all those people out there who, who aren't super nerds. So here, here's how this has kind of evolved over the years. When you look at AI, the first AI systems can be traced back to the 1930s. And you get in the 1930s and you could start seeing where you would get functions that could happen, and you're like, wow, that's kind of cool that it would think, right? And really all it was doing was taking instruction sets and being able to deduce out um, most of the time at that point just a math number. And we went from having what were human calculators back in the 1930s, and that's where the word calculator comes from, is people who did calculations. They were called calculators. And then they became computers, and the same thing. We said they're computing information. They were people at that point. And we made machines to be able to do some of this. And as it got into the 1950s, we would see a few more things that would happen. But nobody really thought of it as true AI. Now, the science fiction world 
love this stuff and could imagine the amazing possibilities, right? You could see the Lost in Space show that was in the 1950s, still in black and white, with this magnificently horrible-looking robot that would (laughs) walk around and say all kinds of things and talk to everybody and how it's all whirring and spinning, and it was a great thing, right? Everybody, Everybody knows that robot if you've seen any of those ancient TV shows nowadays. But the reality is, is the technology really wasn't there. What the technology was doing is it was taking instructions and being able to run those instructions really, really quickly. Now, you mentioned chess. Now, chess is a game that has 10 to the 111th power moves. And I just happen to know that off the top of my head because I do. Um, but it has a humongous number of moves as potentials throughout the entire game. Now, a human being can think through handfuls of those moves. Even the world's champions aren't thinking more than 20, 30 moves in advance of where they sit. And the reality is, is a computer has the ability to be able to take all of those moves and think about every single one of them. And the way that when you know Big Blue took on Kasparov back in, in the 80s and 90s to be able to, to prove out that chess could be a game it could win at, was that it literally took every single move across the board, calculated them all out, and would then reduce those numbers of moves down based on moves that have already happened. And it would simply go, well, if I do this one, I'm most likely to win. 96% chance I'm going to win if I do this one. And it would pick that one. It was relatively very, very straightforward. Now, everybody was super impressed with that. But when Jeopardy came along, and all of a sudden Watson comes out and is playing Jeopardy. That's when you started seeing people's eyebrows finally going up. Because Jeopardy is a much more complex, nuanced game. And this is also what leads into this, this aspect of everybody saying that AI is right here, it's right now, it's right now. You know, oh no, wait, it's ten years from now, and then we go ten years. Oh, it's still ten years later. Oh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Part of it is is that we we as human beings don't really understand how many instruction sets we go through when we go through something. We don't understand all of the millions upon billions upon trillions of calculations our brain is making every single day, all day long, to do simple stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And when Watson came out, Watson could take data and crush it together in a very different way than had been done before and come up with probabilities, and manage those probabilities based on a set of questions. It would do things like the word Riley, right, shows up in a sentence more often in this context than that context. And if you were to just ask Watson, tell me about Riley, the first thing you would hear would be the life of Riley, because it was a most common usage of that word at the point. Mm-hmm. So those kind of things is how it would answer in Jeopardy. And if you go back into YouTube and you watch those little Jeopardy matches with Watson, You'll find that when it gets it right, I mean, it's kind of stunning. And when it gets it wrong, it gets it really wrong. Like it's not even in the right environment, right? Uh, you know, they're talking about agriculture, but it's talking about space goats. You know, it's a totally different place. So that component has evolved and evolved and evolved up into this, this last two years. And in the last two years, now everybody's talking about AI because of one product, ChatGPT. Right? And ChatGPT has kind of reset everybody's concept of what's possible. And the reason they've reset it is because, frankly, it's really easy to use, and it does kind of stun you in how it responds to you. Right? It's become much, much more personable in how it interacts and frankly, it's using something really similar to what was in those days. It's definitely smarter now. It's using uh, massive language models, and it's using these different structures to be able to understand better. But it isn't doing anything that's dramatically different from what we saw back in the 90s, where it's saying, what are the probabilities that this is the right answer based on the information available? Now, it can go through information much, much faster. It can take those things down much, much faster. But it's really it, the whole concept today of artificial intelligence is somewhat of an illusion. It's not really intelligent. It's really good at smashing through huge amounts of data really fast 
and determining high probability levels out of that. And then where generative AI comes in, actually saying, oh, well, this very possible thing and this very possible thing could equal something totally new. And that's where generative AI comes in. And that's also getting people super excited because it's not just relying on those two probabilities, but now it's going because of probability one, probability two, maybe this new thing could exist, something that we don't know. And that's that's where we're leading today. It's it's an evolution. It's been happening for 100 years, but mm-hmm. it's really getting people's attention now because it feels like I'm interacting with a person. I'm going to I'm going to bring up an old computer program called Eliza. I don't know if you've you probably heard of that. It was an early pop psychology that did Jungian uh psychological treatment of of the person typing and it was so simple that you could put it on an apple too, which is a yep. tiny little computer and uh, <clears throat> and yet it would fool you into thinking you were talking to a person so much so that some people who played with it asked to be left in the room alone with it because they wanted to share secrets with it and they felt comfortable sharing those secrets. So Eliza, although it was really uh, just a simple rote system for generating answers, was also very uh, immediately identified as being human-like by the the users. Which brings me to a a question that I kind of like to ask. Um, Alan Turing, the mathematician who helped break the Nazi codes called Enigma in World War II, laid a foundation for early computing, and indeed the Turing test is named after him. Can you, can you tell us how the Turing test works? Yeah, the, the Turing test is all about this aspect of can I fool a human being into believing I'm talking to another human being when in fact they're talking to a computer. Uh, the test in itself is pretty straightforward, but what it has been in the past. So Eliza was one of those good examples where Eliza could could certainly trick some people into believing they were talking to another person, but it was in a very narrow situation and in a very, very, uh, very topical situation. And it was pretty decent at it. And it would, again, your eyebrows go up going, wow, look at that. You know, that's kind of cool. Now, the Turing test gets applied to a lot of different technologies. And there are people who work in the industry even, get very, very tied into this, and believe that they are actually talking to a sentient being. This happened last year where a Google developer came out and and claimed that the product he was talking to was fully sentient. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the really interesting aspect that we're going to be dealing with over the next 10, 20, 40, 50, 100 years. But we have to step back, right? Just as human beings don't understand how much goes into us having the nuance of being human from a biological standpoint, right? We don't understand and how we think to be able to look left on a road, look right on a road, decide there's no car coming and then cross that road, right? We have no idea, concept of how complex that is. Well, we're going to have to go through the same conversation of what does it mean to be sentient? What really truly is intelligence? You know, this, this gets into the metaphysical aspects of things, right? You know, what is a soul? And does a soul really exist? And does it apply to a computer if it can think? And, you know, these are all going to be fascinating philosophical questions. And it's going to lead us to making decisions on all kinds of things. Because there will come a time in which when a computer is very, very responsive to a person, that a person may have feelings for that computer. Maybe all, maybe they can fall in love with a computer, perhaps, right? Could it happen? Well, sci-fi has come up <laughs> right. with this all many times. <laughs> there must be a hundred yeah, science fiction movies about falling in love with computers now. Yeah, there must be a hundred sci-fi movies about it. Well, could it really happen? Well, there's actually been cases of care robots in nursing homes in Japan where the care robots are getting christmas cards from the family they're getting birthday cards from the family because the family isn't necessarily in love with the robot but they are so enamored with what the robot is doing for their loved one that they're treating the robot like it's part of the family right and we have this kind of strange thing in our own society where this happens all the time 
with cats and dogs. I mean, how many people you know that treat their, their animals like family? My my wife, I'm I'm married, I've got three kids, I've I raised three other kids separately. We've had lots of big family, and yet my wife still treats every single dog better than she treats <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, you, you know, know that... uh, because those, they're they're part of the family. And yeah. these are things I'll go back to that Turing test. And it's gonna be this aspect of the Turing test is going to get revised because we're blowing past that initial test now. It's not just, is it alive? Does it feel human? But it's, is it emotionally context? Is it part of my life? Does it remember my birthday? Does it speak to me? Right. And you can get that now on your phones. If you've got a, an Android or an iPhone, right, you can get a birthday celebration sent to you every year from the phone. That's all AI driven. And people make an emotional connection to that because it cares about me. And we see this all the time with the data. Uh, I can see this data within Android recently, and that uh, is part of some of the open source data. But you can see people will say please and thank you to their phone all the time. Yes. And if they happen to swear at their phone, which uh, I'm sure no one here, no one listening ever does. No, <laughs> no. Swear at your phone then more often than not, and it's something like 70% of the time, people will actually go back and apologize to me afterwards. Oh, wow. And this is, again, this is this aspect of personification. They have, so we have, we have changed the Turing test already in our society, and it will continue to evolve as we go. So I have to follow up on that. I have seen people, when their children are interacting with things like Siri, encourage them if not require that they use please and thank you because they now recognize that that's socialization to be polite and if you can be polite to an automaton uh, then you can probably be polite to your neighbor if you need to so what what is going to what's going to really be a shock to the system it's not when people are sending cards and I, i love that story but the first time they send a lawyer in to defend the right of an AI to not be unplugged, we're going to yes. see that's going to be a day and a half. Yeah. How far is that? That day is, that day is coming. I think that day is coming. And there's more, there's more nuance to that than people realize. So today, ChatGPT is sitting in the uh, 4.0 version on, on the website, right? And there's betas for 4.5, 5.0, and those are out there. And these open platforms are being developed. There's other cool products out there that people use all the time in the AI world. ChatGPT is just the one that's kind of started this whole conversation. So if, if we have determined that there is some kind of sentience in an AI, then do we have the right to upgrade it? Can we upgrade it? <laughs> Right? So can we take it from version 5.0 to 6.0? Because what if we change its personnel? I mean, is that any different than lobotomizing it could be? I don't know. I don't know. Do we have to give it the right to update itself then? Yeah. Yeah. Do, do we have to give it the right to update itself? Or, and then maybe the bigger question is, is do we have to force it to update itself? Mm. Let's say it's got security problems. Right? It's got a security issue. This is one of the biggest challenges with artificial intelligence and automation today. If you cannot secure it, you cannot automate it. And that's just the nature of the big beast right now is because there's just so much security issues across the world. So then let's look at something and go, oh, we found a security hole, but it's going to change the personality of the bot to be able to fix it. Hmm. What do we do with that? Oh. Now, Today, you go, eh, screw it, update it. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Right? But at, there will come this point in the future where we have this conversation and we say, well, this is actually a member of the family now. And do we change a member of the family like that? I had a Those friend. Those are going to be amazing conversations. Oh, yeah. You, you're going to have to get together over a, a brew sometime because I got a personal story. I know somebody whose sister had a stroke, and while she was in recovery, the doctor said, She's going to have a personality. She may have a personality change, kind of like an upgrade. And the family's response was, well, can, can we put it in our orders now <laughs> Yeah, for the changes we want? Yeah. 
Uh, you are listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. My name is Rich Larson, and full disclosure and transparency, I'm one of those people that says please and thank you to Siri and to Alexis. <laughs> Alexa. Uh, my co-host is Bruce Moreland, and today we are talking with Sean Riley of Bisbox Consulting, the former CIO of North, North Dakota, about artificial intelligence. Um, Sean, you, you, you said this earlier. Uh, we've just recently seen an explosion um, in artificial intelligence examples. Uh, the easiest one is ChatGPT. So, like you say, it's, it's at the forefront now of a lot of people's minds. Uh, but most people, myself included, don't really know exactly what it is we're talking about or what, what, we're, what, what we're working with here. Can you tell us what is deep learning and what algorithms are, are deep, learning model, uh, deep learning models based on? Yeah, so, so deep learning, machine learning, uh, generative AI, uh, large language models, all of these things are very closely related. And again, this is one of those where the, the nerds in the room will, will want deeper explanations, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep these things at kind of a high level again for the general audience. Mm -hmm. But when you think of machine learning, let me, let me give you an example. If we go back about 10 years, Google had put in a huge amount of time trying to figure out how to have a car drive itself. And on the face of it, this is another one of those things where we go, wow, this should be really easy, right? Because the rules of driving a car are in a book that every 16-year-old kid has to go and read to be able to pass the written exam to then go drive. And almost all, all people can pass a driver's test. It seems like it's something that's relatively simplistic across the board. So we started writing the rules. We took the book. And we wrote the rules that are in the book, and we applied that to the computer. And when the computer went out and tried to drive, it sucked at it, right? It ran into everything. It didn't know how to turn. It could not brake. It didn't know how to accelerate. It was just bad. And we sat back and went, oh, so there's a whole bunch of inherent things here, too. Inherent things like, oh, you want to hit the accelerator? Well, you've got to push the pedal down with your right foot. We don't put that in the book much, <laughs> right? We don't, we, don't, we don't give the nuance of that, right? We don't give the nuance of when you're going to take your foot off the accelerator, your foot has to move to the left about three inches to be able to hit the brake pedal. Right? We don't add that in the book. These are things that, that we pick up inherently. The problem with computers is there's no such thing as that in the old world. right? You had to create instruction sets. So the tool model to be able to get around that is called machine learning. And machine learning will would use your environment to take in data and take in as much data as possible to then be able to say, all right, we're taking in all these instances and then let the computer write its own rules based on the observations. So in this example, Google then took one of their cars, they strapped a hundred and some cameras to this thing pointing in all directions. They added a ton of sensors to the vehicle. They collected every single bit of data they could, and they went driving for three months straight. You know, they put on 100,000-some miles in three months' time. They came back, took all their data, plugged it back into the system, and said, okay, system, based on what you see, what are the things that happen most frequently? And sure enough, it could figure out all of a sudden how to accelerate, how to brake how to turn left, how to turn right, how to properly decelerate when you're turning, how to use the turn signal, all these things. It could do that because all of a sudden it had, oh, these are the commonalities in the motion, right? So that aspect then became machine learning. Machine learning has been what's able to really accelerate huge advances in AI in the last 20 years. Deep learning is taking that another phase forward. So deep learning is implanting sensors and implanting environmental things out there to be able to gather data on a constant basis, maybe to find the rules that we don't even know that we need to have, right? And deep learning can be done in a couple of different ways. It can be done in small, direct platforms like aerospace. Aerospace does this where they'll do deep learning on airplanes to be able to try to figure out how can we decrease our fuel utilization. 
but it can also be used in very broad ways where you apply it to huge swaths of the internet and say, what do we know about human characteristics and how people act in certain situations? But what we're doing then is, is we're taking all this data from all over the place, and sometimes we know what question to ask, uh, but oftentimes we don't, right? Mm-hmm. Because this is, again, this is what we don't understand about ourselves. You don't, you don't think about blinking your eyes. You don't think about that it takes 26 muscles on the left side to blink that eye, 26 muscles on the right side to blink that eye. You don't think about any of that stuff, right? Um, that just happens. So we don't necessarily even realize we should ask those questions. But what deep learning is doing is it's taking all this information and then being able to ascertain questions, being able to start writing new rules towards an outcome. And it's something that's still very much evolving and will get better and better over time. But it, it creates options to be able to think differently about our society. It's, you know, these are, these are amazing things that we can do, right? So obesity is a huge problem in the United States. It's a huge problem worldwide, right? What are the characteristics of obesity and where is it happening and what could we do without substantial change to the food process to be able to actually help people to be able to lose weight? I mean, those those kind of things. So what about housing issues, right? There's not enough housing in the country. What can we think about to be able to manage this? This These are, these are projects that I've seen where the AI is bringing in all this data trying to answer questions that we don't know how to ask it. That's a, that's a great way to put that, that it'll answer questions that we didn't know to ask. That's one of the things I used to explain about black box programming at the Mayo. Uh, I said, this is going to answer questions you didn't know you had. And the, my trick then was to explain to the doctors who had to trust the model what it meant when the model told them something. And uh, that was a, a challenge, to say the least. So I'm going to get more geeky again, I think. <laughs> sorry, sorry, audience. Um, <laughs> but you probably, if you've been following this, you awful, often hear about artificial general intelligence, AGIs. Um, are they essentially the same as the deep learning models, or is there a subtlety in that? So there's, there's subtleties across all of these, right? And... <laughs> Um, True. So there's, there are all kinds of subtleties across all of this. Now, one, one of the problems we really have in this market space right now is there are hundreds upon hundreds of different companies out there that do different AI aspects of things, and some of them are trying to rebrand a new model, a new type of name or word type around it so that they can have a a market space advantage, basically, right? <laughs> uh, so some of it is that. Okay. Some of it is uh, where you really do have differentiation in the technology, but it's not necessarily done in a way that uh, makes makes it vastly different than anything else. It's something that it's maybe a different way of using it, right? So I can use a butter knife to spread butter, but I can also use a butter knife to cut a soft cheese, right? Mm-hmm. And... So if I do it with butter, is it a butter knife? But I do it with cheese, it's a cheese knife, but it's the exact same knife. Sometimes that's what's happening in market spaces. Um, but when you look at like AGI in general, right, there's all kinds of things that AGIs are being able to use, and it's intended to be more broad in its nature. So when you get into things like uh, video progression out there, what everybody wants to talk about today is deep fakes, right? They want to be able to talk about deep fakes. They, you know, everybody thinks deep fakes are horrible. At the same time, is the very identical technology, the same technology that made Barack Obama look like he was doing the crazy, crazy bones dance on the White House, which is a hilarious video to watch, right? Uh, which is all humor and meant to be. That exact same technology also created a deep fake about Donald Trump being arrested and taken to prison which wasn't humorous because this one was done in a way that it looked really, really real and people thought something was going on, that is also the same technology that is being used in medical schools right now so that when they don't have enough cadavers and they don't have, uh, they aren't at a point in their medical students yet where they can actually go and do an AI rendering of a human being and be able to, to do surgical testing to be able to help those people be a better surgeon. Right. And this this is part of what the complications of this technology across the board is, 
is that you have all kinds of places all this stuff can be used, and it's uh, it's all in how it's applied in the moment. Okay, cool. Um, I'm just going to go back to the. We, I wanted to ask about deep fakes. So you give me a perfect opening there. Um, and are they empowered by the large, lang- um, the kinds of technologies that go into your language models, or are they more uh, I- image and um, image processing type? What, how are they it's, different? Large large language models have some structural similarities to some of the deepfake stuff, but what's going on is, is these are really image modeling through deep learning or through machine learning, where you're finding similar characteristics across a target image, right? And you can look at like a, a, a photo of myself and take 100,000 different photos of me from all these different angles and all these different ways and all these different places. And you can create a mathematical likelihood of how I would look from a certain angle or in a certain situation. And you could take all this imagery. So the more somebody's on TV, the easier this is to do, right? Mm-hmm. So in today's world, the systems, a lot of them, if you're still, a, if you're a trained person, most of them, you can still pick it out and go, oh, this one's a fake, this one's a fake. But I got to say, a lot of these now are getting to the point where it is really hard to tell. So uh, what we're advocating from a policy standpoint on this is that we are able to source videos through potentially a blockchain certificate, a blockchain-enabled certificate, something that can be publicly accessible, not to say what's right and wrong, not looking to try to be the censor, but we are trying to say this is what the source is. So that we can say, well, the video says it comes from, you know, whatever news network, but the blockchain certificate says it comes from XYZ place in Russia. Well, now we can go, well, that's going to be a fake, right? Uh, We don't have to worry about the whole ascertaining through the video processing to be able to determine that. Because right now, as the video processing is getting better and better and better, I don't know that in five years you're going to be able to visually tell the difference between a fake and a real. No, the the AIs are like any other uh, trainee. They work very hard to not be caught at what they're doing because that's part of the objective function, if you will. And uh, so I'm not surprised that they're going to get better than we can keep up with. I had a question specific to ChatGPT, and I was going to ask this. And it was kind of ironic when I was typing up the script. It said, I often have been displayed, which was ironic because I wanted to say dismayed, but the <laughs> autocorrect took it right where it needed to go. So anyway, I've often been dismayed when autocorrect changes my intentions. And a lot of my friends now follow their posts with an immediate list of corrected spellings. So when the autocorrect does it wrong. The question I have is, are large language models like ChatGP, ChatGPT essentially autocorrects on steroids? Um, in some ways, in some ways you could see it that way. Uh, in other ways, you know, they're, they're much more intelligent that so mm-hmm. let's take let's take what we were talking about EGIs mm-hmm. so artificial general intelligence now there are artificial intelligence or AGI as its own concept right is something around being able to accomplish basically any task that a human can can do right that is well beyond a spell check but the AGI as a as a technology today as is kind of a segmented node of of ai they're all very segmented it's these individual things that can do very small pieces here and there and we're starting to collect them together now this goes back again to this aspect of what does it mean to be a human being right Uh, when we think through these things there are all sorts of places where i kind of scratch my head and go like it's looking at my language and determining if my language is appropriate well i speak a certain way here in the upper midwest well if you put me in tennessee i grew up in tennessee so i instantly have an accent 
And I like my my kids think I'm insane because they think I've just gone had some schizophrenic breakdown or something because I just <laughs> all of a sudden sound different, right? Uh, but from a language perspective, that is the appropriate language in the appropriate place. Wow. So these are the kind of things that we have to think through. Now, what is English in the United States versus English in England? <laughs> we today use word processors to be able to help correct our spelling, but the whole context of how we use our language is something completely different. Yes. And those those are kind of fun aspects of this where AI will be able to help really uh, democratize language across the board. Because, you know, I mean, this the running the running joke, right? I mean, you know, the the British people and the American people are only separated by the use of a common language. So, I mean, it, those are those are the kind of things that we see all the time. Okay, um, I want to take us now get set up for the the next stage, which is uh, talk about a couple of of quick things that we've seen deepfakes being used for. Uh, our show last week covered disinformation campaigns and uh, one of the questions that I asked at the Braver Angels convention of a dis- of a pr- professor who presented on disinformation uh, was how hard AI was going to make the job of blocking disinformation and correcting it because if I take an AI enabled system and have it, it can flood the system with disinformation in a way that I don't know that we can keep up with them with a million FBI agents, let alone Agent. with the size size that we have now. Yeah. Um, we know that the, the as we talked about with the deep fakes, they can they can mess with authenticity. Uh, the screen, Rich, you you were gonna, the Screen Actors Guild. Yep. Uh, he want know is that that includes the issue of using AI generated versions of actors. Uh, they want to get it's like wanting to get residuals from your kids in a way. <laughs> But maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, when, w- how do you see some of these systems now in the current state disrupting our political world? Do, do you see them mostly where I just outlined, or do you have other ways that I don't know to be scared about yet? <laughs> so, so there's all sorts of things in this space that are, are really, really interesting. So when we talk about deepfakes as an example, we could create deepfakes at a vastly, vastly higher speed than any regular video is able to be, right? So a human being lives for 24 hours a day. They're probably sleeping a little bit of that. We could have a camera on them the entire time, multiple cameras on them the entire time. And we could outstrip that with a with generative technology by thousands of times and put out thousands of hours for every 24 hours worth of life a person has of completely fake video now here's where this gets to be interesting so i do all kinds of executive consulting around the world i work with companies of all sorts and sizes doing all sorts and sizes of things what if i am able to go and talk into an ai for say a month straight and have it be able to kind of pick my brain and be into a virtual version of myself that can become an instructor, maybe a professor style role. That's an incredibly positive utilization of that for, for my company, for services area. I could offer that as services all over the place. Um, amazing kind of stuff that would be really positive. At the same time, it could turn me into some kind of weird ass dancing monkey. You know, you never know. <laughs> right. Um, and all those kind of things are possible out there. And again, this is where all these technologies, it's all about how do we manage them and how do we make sure that we manage them. Now, when it comes to the political side, I think one of the things that I find disturbing is when you look at the, the non-traditional social media sites out there, they are eaten alive by bots all the time. We just see this constantly. You know, even Elon Musk, when he bought Twitter, had said something like, Twitter could be as much as 40% bots, right? Wow. No, I don't know. We, we don't know exactly what that number is because I don't think they ever came out and stated that for sure. But we have definitely seen when the Russians invaded Ukraine, we saw a huge upswing in bot technology being used to try to push the agenda of both sides of the war, not just one, but both sides. So, 
Why would we not expect that in our political environments? In fact, I would be amazed if that's not happening, not just from foreign actors, but also from our own political parties, where people who are supporting, maybe not directly the Republicans or Democrats doing it themselves, but people who are supporting those parties, using that same technology to be able to continue to push their own agendas there. Now, these are, these are really concerning things because the amount of information they can crack out is above and beyond what any human being could ever take in. Right? Um, but those are, those are aspects that we have to think about going forward. Again, authorizing source against information would be a huge step forward, making sure that we could say, well, this, all this stuff here, none of this actually comes from regular people. All this stuff here comes from this super PAC or from that organization over there. To be able to, to nail that down would be a huge impactor because we can tag it then, and we can automate those tags too. So every time you look at a comment, you go, oh, well, these, these comments are all from China. All these comments are from Russia. All these comments are from XYZ. Uh, those would be ways to be able to really help narrow this down. Because today, right now, everyone's treated as if there's, you know, Uncle Joe sitting on the corner with a real opinion when there's a huge percentage of this stuff isn't a real opinion. It's a generated opinion. Oh, man. So what we're talking about there is, I mean, we could apply this to voter manipulation, basically, right. is what we're talking about. You hear so much sort of, about... Sort of. Sort of. I, I would say, so here, here's the problem, right? So, so let's go back to 1824, and here in the United States, you can go read the newspapers, and the amount of bold-faced lies in the newspapers uh, against the two political parties was unbelievable. You know, uh, Everything that you would read in there was just astoundingly horrible because they had become massively polarized. Right. Oh, wow. And same thing happens in 1860. Right. And the lead up to the uh, election of Abraham Lincoln. And the same thing happens again and again in the United States. But we we tend to forget we only care about the one we're in right now and say this one's definitely the worst. Right. Um, because we don't remember our history very well. But we've had this same problem going back long before the technology was available to do this. So today, what it comes down to is, is everybody has the capability to apply their opinion into the public. That's that's what I think is really different. And if you know how to use the tools, you can multiply your opinion. It's a force multiplier in a huge way. So while on some hands you go, this is uh, nation state actors kind of stuff, there's a lot of it is just plain and simple people who are actually voters here knowing how to use the tools to be able to multiply their tools. You're right. listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Minnesota, or downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Rich Larson. My co-host is Bruce Moreland. Our guest today is Sean Riley uh, with BizBox, and he is currently scaring the living daylights out of me when we talk about <laughs> the political situation <laughs> and artificial intelligence. Yes, well, that's part of our purpose is to Indeed. make sure everybody knows where we're at. Exactly. Um, I'm going to start, I'm going to move us into policy changes that might make a difference. And I'm going to start by telling everybody that when I was an analyst and later teaching nuclear weapons, the theory and practice and use of, uh, and in particular the nuclear nonproliferation treaties, we discussed the barriers to entry that keep everybody from coming in nuclear power. I mean, you've got to have some major NGO. You, uh, no NGO that I can think of could manage building nuclear weapons. But the question is, are the big AIs similarly constrained to being only the purview of the larger nations like the U.S. and Russia and Iran and maybe throw in Google, Apple, and Tesla? Or are they just tools once developed essentially releasable into the wild where anybody can use them? Like five guys in a computer working in a garage could implement them. So, so it's, that's a great question, and I would say it's yes and yes. Uh, there are aspects of some of the things that we do today within the AI world that take that take a ton of resources. Now, there are new data centers that are going up around the world today that are these very, very large liquid-cooled data centers using humongous amounts of computing power, you know, millions upon hundreds of millions of dollars worth of computing power to be able to get to certain answers and certain things. On the other hand, from a software perspective, 
most of the software is stuff that you can go out onto futuretools.io and they have all this wonderful list out there that it's meant to be helpful for you. There's 1,200 some applications out there last time I looked and all those apps can be used by you right now for free. And there are all kinds of tools that can help you do all kinds of things. And companies will use them to get rid of the commodity, repeating, predictable, mundane, boring work that they that their teams have to do. Let the computer do the boring work. And then their staff can do higher value, much more valuable work. That's, that's a great thing in a lot of cases. But also behind the scenes, the technology that does the small stuff can also be used on all kinds of big stuff. So this is this is definitely a different world where uh, I can have a spoon to move dirt or I can have a bulldozer to move dirt and both of them move dirt and both of them are available to me today. So, oh, wow. right. so we touched a little bit on, on social media, um, which is you know, already disrupting politics around the world. Um, will deep fakes, fake news, fake videos, what, what have you, is that going to flood our dialogue, which is already high volume, high rhetoric, um, and just just add more misinformation, more disinformation, to you know make democracies no longer competitive with uh, authoritarian, totalitarian uh, systems? Is is this the real 1984 come to us? <laughs> uh, well, I. Uh... I read the book a couple times recently just to make sure. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, so here's here's where I would come at this. The are we in the real 1984? I would say no. Uh, could we be possibly? This whole aspect of the destruction of democracy due to the to deep fakes. I I want to step back and think of this a little differently. What what all of this information has been doing is that it erodes trust. And it's not just in democracy. It's really eroding trust across everything, right? And where you get deep fix. So people like to focus on the, the ones we've seen with Joe Biden and Donald Trump and other prominent politicians. But there's also deep fix out there on car utilization. Right. If you're a Mustang versus a Corvette guy, you can find a deep fake that makes the other car look really crappy. Right. <laughs> um, that's something that's certainly outside of the nuance of the political world, but it is certainly inside the nuance of impacting the economy and impacting real market spaces. And there's all sorts of things like that out there that are certainly troublesome because what happens now is is that when someone sees something, and I've, I've seen this in legislatures these last few years, as I go out and uh, been testifying to multiple states across the country for different products and things around cybersecurity, uh, the, the, the people coming in, they don't trust the data that they see. They don't trust the information that they see. They're picking a source and deciding that source is an absolute source. And maybe the source is right. But we don't know. <laughs> we really don't know. And that has become what is really disturbing to me is, is this aspect of any information anywhere could be questionable, regardless of source, if it's a source you trust or not. That's what's the killer right now. Yeah. And this yeah. goes back to, again, policy that I continue to push for is for determining source and locking in source for every single video out there. And I know that's a big deal, but so what? We've done this before. We do this, and that's the way you're able to use a video on your PC and on your Mac and on your phone and, and, and. It's because we created standards that have these standards requirements. Now, if we pushed for, again, sourcing, I'm not looking to censor anybody. You make whatever video you want sure. about whatever you want, but I can say this one comes from, you know, National Institute of Health. I can say this one comes from the CDC. I can say this one comes from the WHO. I can say this one comes from Mayo Clinic, right? wherever I want. But I at least then know what the origination is, and I can determine and decide whether or not I like that source. Right? Those are the kind of things that are out there that we, we really need to think about from a policy standpoint. That's an incredible insight that uh, the thing that we've, I, I, I've heard this too, uh, that what we've lost is trust 
And when you fooled once or twice, you suddenly don't believe anything. And that's actually been written about as a major problem, is that people have gotten out of where they don't believe anything they see, except what already fits their preconceived notion of what they should be seeing. Uh, confirmation bias is really big out there. Um, <coughs> cool. This, uh, just, this just deepens what, uh, what they're calling the post-truth era. I mean, oh, that, that oh. just gets us deeper into it. It does, it does. Um, we've already seen some strong evidence of, of troll farms disrupting not only U.S. elections, but also politics around the world, like Brexit, uh, political riots in the Far East, and these are all examples of recent uses. Are these AIs going to replace troll farms by making them into 24-hour-a-day-for-free operations, relatively speaking? Um. I, I think it's, so. Troll troll farms are something that that will evolve on its own, the same as most of this deep fake technology. Now, again, where where this gets to be troublesome is the response everybody wants to take is, well, ban the tech, right? Well, then you know AI is evil. Ban the AI. In fact, I had to testify on one of these things just this year, uh, earlier this year. Uh, they wanted to ban AI. They want to ban teaching of artificial intelligence. They want to ban the tools, you know, and why don't we just ban oxygen and water while we're at it, right? <laughs> and, you know, well, the reality yeah. is this stuff is absolutely everywhere. And again, it's not about the technology itself. It's about how it's used. So let me, let me give you an example from my former job. The state of North Dakota received about four and a half billion attacks per year on a cybersecurity standpoint. 99.999999% of those were defended by an artificial intelligence system. That's less than 50,000 a year that were done by humans. Out of four and a half billion attacks, less than 50,000 are handled by humans. All the rest of them are defended by the AI, right? The AI is is the shield that allows that state to be able to continue to defend itself. And this is the same way all across the country right now. Um, these, these kinds of things are out there and being used for good as often, if not vastly more, than they're being used for evil. Now, the, the deep fake side of things is kind of a category all on its own because we've just made deep fake a bad guy. But the video management for those type of things is being used all over for agriculture processing, right? For determining whether or not we're in a drought, for determining what, what seeds need to be able to have more fertilizer. Uh, it's used in road management today all over the country. So, you know, DOTs that are trying to manage this stuff. It's just the, the tech is everywhere. So this aspect of troll farms, well, trolls have existed ever since humanity vanity figured out how to talk to one each other um once we started figuring out how to talk to each other somebody decided to make fun of the other person or rip on the other person um but in today's world right there's just a whole lot more mature than they used to be they'll use the tech uh, they'll use the tech they'll apply the tech but that same tech is being used to defend against them all the time okay all right so Sean, before we went on air, you and I were talking a little bit about uh, my concerns about uh, 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 AI, and and really what I put to you was how how do we get to the point where, you know, in, in the future the 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 uh, the technology we come up with are more R two D two than they are T one thousand Terminators, right? Okay, <laughs> but but like boiling that down to something more realistic. What are, I mean, you've talked about, you've talked about sourcing, but what are the regulations and licensing? Um, what can we do uh, internationally to sort of make sure uh, that this technology is being developed responsibly? Um, do we take a pause? Do we mandate a pause? Is that even plausible? Um, what do you think is the most likely uh, thing to happen with all of this? Yeah, regu regulation is what always comes up in almost every one of these conversations, and it's one of those things that I have a, I have a real love-hate relationship with this aspect of regulation. So, so there, is, there is regulation in the 
world that is intended for good and does good things. But uh, more often than not, what we see is, is we see regulation that is intended for good without understanding of consequence. We also very frequently see companies that will come out and jump up and down saying, please regulate me, please regulate me. And the reason they're saying that is because they're trying to make sure that no one disrupts them. Because we have to remember here, ChatGPT is from an organization called OpenAI. Nobody had ever heard of them three years ago. And all of the top Fortune 500 companies are going, holy crap, we're being disrupted galore because of this little company nobody had ever heard of. And the same thing with MidJourney, the same thing with Orca, the same thing with company after company right now in the AI space. They're disrupting the living crap out of big business. That is one of the things that does concern me about people pushing for regulation. I want to make sure that regulation, as it comes forward, actually impacts the problem, doesn't create something that is, frankly, capping innovation for the purposes of old dollars, right? So this is this is a very difficult thing to do. Now, when you talk about like R2D2 versus the T1000, the, <laughs> the reality is in today's world, last Tuesday I was up at Grand Forks and uh, I was at University of North Dakota up in Grand Forks and in the campus they have these little robots that are driving around. They're about the size of a Yeti cooler, kind of look like a Yeti cooler except they're blue, big four wheels on them and these robots drive around delivering food to the campus. So you're on campus, you order your food, and the little robot brings it out to your dorms, and it drops off the food out in the dorms. That's that's the vastly, vastly more common kind of robot that we have in today's world. Uh, we, we are a long ways away from giving any bot any kind of autonomous thinking capability to be all by itself without some kind of human master and human oversight. That, while it feels really close by and it feels really near, we are much, much further away from that than people would think. And that's something that uh, will have to be thought about, though. This is, do we give that technology the ability to be fully autonomous? Do we give it the ability to be fully and completely out there by itself? Do you want a robot that is a police officer that is helping, has no ability to, to have any kind of lethal component to it, but only a defense component to it. Do you want it to be autonomous, or do you want it to always have some kind of rules around it that has to be driven or managed by a human being? Those are the kind of things that we're going to have to think about. And uh, where this is going to hit the wall is going to be military. And military <laughs> systems are definitely where it's going to hit the wall. And it's not necessarily the United States that's going to be the problem. Because the reality is, is when you look at AI tech, this is vastly cheaper than building a new fighter plane. This is vastly cheaper than building a new aircraft carrier. So when you started getting into other nation states that are trying to compete in a military world, they're looking at all their options. Cyber is super cheap. AI is super cheap in comparison to mm -hmm. building out full-on militaries. So that's, that, that's where things are going to get to be really interesting. I, I was watching a, a show on on streaming show uh, uh, that was discussing for a whole hour what's already being done in the military realm with autonomous robots and how the the question of autonomous is, is seems to be always a footnote in the development process because the the teams are so excited to have a robot running around with a twelve gauge or a, <laughs> a little Sam or whatever. So. I'm going to ask you to help me conclude then with a little hint to our uh, our listeners. I always like to ask our guests if they have any recommendations for entertaining yet informative movies. Don't scare Rich any more than he already is. <laughs> I saw. Oh, but do you have any movies that get it right? You know, I think uh, the problem in Hollywood is is that they love the drama side of technology. They don't often use it to the benefit side, right? But um, you know, if you're a if you're a Star Trek fan, Mister Data is the best mm -hmm. artificial intelligence robot, right? Now, yeah. now even there, they couldn't resist making his identical brother Lore be the evil murderous <laughs> robot. You know, they couldn't resist that. Yes, uh, but. You know, there's 
in in today's world, right? There's a there's a ton of good sci-fi out there, but you can you can learn from some of this stuff that in reality it's a whole hell of a lot harder to program up that technology than people think it is. It's when we use the word autonomous today, we use it all over the place where things really, really aren't autonomous. This is again, this is a branding problem. Same as I was talking before. Mm-hmm. We use these branding things all over. Uh, a lot of our autonomous aircraft are actually more like remote controlled aircraft than they are exactly. autonomous. Those, those kind of things out there. But I would say for people is just, you know, I would avoid Hollywood <laughs> in every sense when it comes to sci-fi around uh, autonomy and robots and computers because all they're going to tell you is, is what's going to kill everybody. They're not going to tell you what's going to be healthy. <laughs> um, well, there it is. All right. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation, uh, a very important conversation too. And, Sean, we always, always appreciate it when you give us some of your time. Uh, unfortunately, this is where the, we have to end the program today. Yep. I'm Bruce Moreland, and my co-host today has been Rich Larson. Sean Riley, thank you for taking the time from your busy schedule to share your wisdom and experience with us on the important topic of artificial intelligence. Thank you, gentlemen. Great to be here. The objective of public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, and in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. This will conclude this edition of our program. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, each Friday morning from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock a.m. Be sure to join us for next Friday's edition of Public Policy This Week. Have a fantastic Friday, everybody, and a superb weekend. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.